Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear other people, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it, it's free, and it takes just a few seconds. Then, during registration, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher. Where it says that, you enter other people, and when you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks. It's that simple. The latest episode of the show will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to lots of other amazing content too, always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com free of charge or get it in the App Store. It's available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer. And don't forget to enter the promo code Other People when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, you guys, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is arresting your attention. This is ringing in your ears. Thank you for being here. Thank you for focusing on this. My name is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. I'm sitting in a chair, and uh, I'm very caffeinated. The wind is blowing outside. If I turn slightly to my right and gaze out the window, I can see palm trees bending in the wind. I can see an apartment building. I can see a big white cloud. That's what I can see. Uh, I had a good day of writing today, despite the fact that I experienced insomnia last night. I worked hard. I worked well. I drank tremendous amounts of caffeinated beverage. Can you hear it? I'm a little shaky. I'm not going to lie. I'm a little shaky from the inside out. That's how much caffeine I have ingested. I have ingested extraordinary amounts, even by my own standards. Uh, but I think on the upside that I did have a good writing day today, despite it all, or because of it. I put the words in the right order. I think I put the words in the right order. And hey, uh, speaking of words, here's a bit of news. Uh, in case you missed it, I do have a new book uh, coming out. And actually, it is out. It is available now. You can get it. I want to give a quick plug. It is called Board, B-O-A-R-D. It is available now in trade paperback 
and it is also available as an ebook, both of which are very handsome editions. I co-authored this book with Justin Benton. It is a work of literary collage. It is experimental in nature. The contents of it uh, come from the comment boards over at thenervousbreakdown.com, which is my online literary uh, blog, website, community. And uh, the way that it was built is like this. Justin Benton and I went through the first two years of the Nervous Breakdown's existence. We looked at every post. We looked at every comment board. We extracted the best comments, and then we edited them, and then we organized them and arranged them and collaged them into a book that reads like a really unusual conversation, if that makes any sense. It's a strange book, but I think it's pretty good, and I think it's unusually emotional. It will make you laugh. It will make you cry. And uh, I figured I would read an excerpt. Should I read an excerpt? I'm going to read an excerpt from Bored. A random Tuesday night during college, I'm all alone. For the hell of it, I take a roofie and proceed to walk around on the hill in Boulder. I end up in a video arcade where I play games for an hour. It takes a while for the roofie to kick in, and when it does, my head feels like it's full of feathers. I experience a complete loss of inhibition. In a stupor, I shuffle over to an ice cream shop and order a chocolate gelato in a cone. I find a park bench and sit down and eat my gelato and look at the people walking by. Everybody is smiling at me. Girls are making direct eye contact and grinning at me. I feel great. I feel no pain. I think to myself, Jesus, I must be giving off some kind of good vibe. But in truth, I'm missing my mouth with the cone every time I bring it to my face. Chocolate gelato all over my neck, shirt, and lap. So uh, there you have it, folks. That is it. That is an excerpt from Bored, my new book with Justin Benton. Go get yourself a copy. Uh, it will entertain you. It will move you emotionally. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Lisa Carver. She is a writer and a performance artist, also known as Lisa Suckdog. Her latest book is called Reaching Out With No Hands, Reconsidering Yoko Ono, and it is available now from Backbeat Books. Uh, Lisa and I had a great conversation. She was really fun to talk to. I hope you guys enjoy it. 
This right here is the lovely and talented Lisa Carver. I'm in Dover, New Hampshire, and I'm on my bed, and I'm uh, messy. You're messy. I have clothes. I have clothes everywhere and shoes. Yeah, it's terrible. Okay. Well, I uh, I want to start. I mean, like I've been reading about you in preparation for this conversation, and there's there's so much to discuss. You've had quite a life, like compared to me. I feel, <laughs> I feel very boring when I compare myself mentally to you. You've had a hell of a life. I I try to have one. I mean, what's you know, you're you're gonna die, so <laughs> I'm gonna try to have a good death too. Yeah, well, it's a, you know, it's a useful thing to remember, like the the, the temporariness. But I mean, you've had dramatic stuff uh, happen to you. You know, like I, I just I wonder uh, how you've survived. Do you ever think that? <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever think that yeah. to yourself? Do you ever think that to yourself? Like, well, I can't believe I'm still here, or is this? Uh, does it just feel like, uh, you know? I guess not. No, I, I've always, always felt uh, superhuman. You know how you do when you're when you're 17. You think you could like lay down in front of a Mack truck and and somehow you would survive because you're just that tough. You yeah, know? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, you know, it's funny that you say that. I have friends, uh, distinct memory of two of my friends who one summer wound up uh, like out east on like Cape Cod or something. Like it was some sort of, you know, vacation with the family and they were out there and they both dropped acid and they felt so superhuman that they were actually doing that. They were actually lying down in the middle of a road and they felt like they knew exactly when to get up to avoid cars as they were coming. It was very, you know, it seems insane looking back. On it. Yeah. Yeah. You, you think you're magic. I, I've done that too, but not on acid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's give, let's give listeners some context. Like, can you just talk, like, I, I figure maybe we can start, um, you know, somewhere near the beginning, like talk, talk a little bit about your childhood and how you grew up. Oh, all right. I'll give you my first joke. Why was the fish disgusted? Why was the fish disgusted? Yes. I don't know. Why? Because the seaweed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you don't have to laugh. I know. All right. I, 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 I want one of those. I need one of those uh, machines that go to the. You know those those little like machines that make a noise after you tell a joke. Yeah. You ever no, seen one? Or you need like the uh, the snare drum. You know the snare drum and then the cymbal. Can you add that on after or applause? <laughs> I, I can do some post production. I do have a you know some canned applause that I do, and I use it every once in a while in the uh, in the monologue. But um, yeah, do you have do you have the book with no name? That uh, I had no. sent to you. I'm sure I do. Yeah. Uh, well, somewhere you'll find in your in your boxes of stuff a book with no name, and that's all about my childhood. So. Um, I don't know. What do you want to know? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, just like summarize. You went through a lot as a kid, you know, like you, you, yeah. you, know, you, you were um, in an abusive household. And I think that, you know, I don't mean to make you like relive it or, you know, go through the tedium of explaining it all in great detail. But I think that it has uh, obviously a lot of bearing on the, uh, the work that you do and who you are. I mean, you know, so it's sure, just, yeah. just to give people some context. Um, well, I, I seem to have been a prostitute from about the age of three or four on um, to, I don't know how uh, it happened. I don't know if they were, 
my my feeling is is that it was like a, a loose bunch of pedophiles who would trade children. I think that's that's what it was. But it was um, organized by my father, and um, I, you know, got through it. I think by uh, telling jokes and just being a nice person and being able to, um, you know, float away inside my head. And then, um, I, my father went to prison when I was six and life, um, life changed. <laughs> and I, uh, I, what did he go to prison for? Um, well, he'd been, um, selling drugs, uh, going back and forth with guns and drugs between Mexico and Arizona and dealing out of um, Massachusetts as well. And they, the apparently the FBI knew about all this, but they hadn't been able to catch him. He'd escaped a few times. And then um, they had his, our phone bugged. And one time he um, let somebody else use his phone for a deal and that that was considered conspiracy and he went to federal prison for six years okay so at that point when he goes away and you're six years old um things improve for you it was an improvement it was it was a big change i i was i um i really missed him he was you know everything to me i thought i would die without him because that's what he always told me and uh I, you know, he didn't let me around anyone else and people I was around, like my mother and his girlfriend, he would make fun of them and ridicule them and speak about them as if they were dangerous to me and stupid. And I was very superior and special. So I had scorn and fear for my mother. So I was left with her, who I had been really indoctrinated against. Um, and I kind of hated her. Also, I tried to have her save me. You know, she got out when I was four, and she didn't take me with her. And so I was, you know, I hated her because of that. So it was strange because we were all pretending that everything was normal and um, never acknowledged anything and actually didn't, I didn't remember anything really. And my mother apparently didn't either. She's dead now, so I can't ask her. But uh, we just acted like everything was great and we loved each other and inside secretly I think we hated each other <laughs> and we just went along like that my mother was very poor and sick and so we were on welfare or she would get a little job and we would you know stay someplace for three months and then the landlord would be demanding rent so we'd leave in the middle of the night and Where we didn't you? have anything um, all around. We moved all around. Uh, Maine, Massachusetts, Vermont, Arizona, California, um, all everywhere. New Hampshire. So you and you just in and out of schools, like were you, you know what I'm saying? Like you were going to school. Was there was there any kind of normalcy at all? Yeah, I would go to school. Um, I I liked school, but uh, we did change schools often mid year and every year until. Um, finally in the fourth grade, um, I stayed in one school and I was happy. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. So this is what I'm talking about though, because I have my little life, which by comparison has been charmed. You know, my childhood was charmed by comparison 
And yet, you know, I, I what's can... that like? What is what is it like to to have a nice childhood? What does that feel like? You know, well, I mean, it feels great. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's nice to have parents and have my, my parents are together. They're still together. Um, I have sister, you know, it's not perfect, but it, you know, I think I should appreciate it more, especially when I hear stories like this. And, you know, at the same time I can still make complaints and it makes me feel sheepish. And it also makes me feel in awe of, of you and people who have gone through stuff like this, because the fact that you've been able to kind of go through that kind of fire and come out of it, uh, reasonably intact and making books and doing stuff. And you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, it's heroic to me because a lot of people crumble under much lighter burdens. If you know, you know, I got a lot of work skills. I mean, I started work when I was three, I was also a grifter and I got trained in, um, you know, con jobs and, and selling drugs and being a prostitute. And, you know, if you, both my parents were grifters of one kind or another and, when you, but those skills, those can be applied to anything and, and they can be turned into positive there. It's, it's really just looking at people and figuring them out immediately, what they want, what their dreams are, what, what works with them. And so you can use that for, you know, your own selfish acquisitions um, and you can take advantage of people that way, or you can just be a, a, a good journalist or you can be an empathetic person to be a good advocate. Um, so, but, you know, I started working early. If we had been on a farm, I would have gotten a lot of skills and, you know, I wouldn't have had the trauma to go with it, but, but it was, you know, it's not all bad having an abusive childhood. You do get a lot of skills and a feeling of, um, you know, you can do anything and nobody can, you know, I don't have to fear like what awful things might happen because so many awful things have happened and, and I got through them all and I even have happiness. So, <laughs> yeah, I was so going to say, I was going to say, you must not have a lot of the, uh, like simple, mundane, tedious fears that plague the average boring person. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, like you've been through so much. Uh, I mean, do you walk around fearless? Do you have fear of death? Do you have fear of these things after going no. None no fear of death at all but um i do have i do have fear like a general like fear like i'm like a murderer is following me i i've always had that but i've had it's so bad because i mean and it's real too i mean i watched my pets being killed in front of me for having when i would um if I told any bad thing that happened to me, then my punishment was I had to watch my pets being killed. And that was really hard on me. And, and um, I mean, I'm sure you can imagine. I loved my pets. They were my best friends. Oh. So um, so I do have a like this constant fear that I'm being tracked. And, and I was tracked. <laughs> my every movement was tracked. Everything I said was suspicious. And, you know, so I, I do have that fear, but it's so prevalent and it's so constant and it's so bad that I, like, I don't feel it. You know, it's like if you have, if you have something constantly, it's like it, it becomes like uh, background noise. Well, no, it's like, so the, I, it's like the old line, like, you know, whoever discovered water, it wasn't a fish. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, that's neat. Um, I don't think that applies to this one, but I like that anyway. Yeah, or um, something. <laughs> but I, I do, um, 
I do. I, so I don't feel any fear because I feel so much fear, you know. So I I feel pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and, and so what about... I mean, and this is going to, Oh, you know what it is? I'm not, I'm not afraid of fear. I think that's what most people are afraid of and that they, you know, I think they're just so afraid of what will it feel like if I am so afraid, but I am so afraid already. So I don't kind of don't, don't have anything left to fear because I already have, I don't know. Yeah. You know, you've already (laughs) already done that. You've already, you know, you've, you've lived through it. And I mean, I think that breeds a certain confidence in a strange way that just to know that you can survive the worst, like, you know, I mean, a lot of people, I think, like you say, they sit around fearing the worst or fearing the f- fear of the worst or whatever it is, you know, and, and you happen to have gone through it and come out uh, on the other side. And so, you know, that I guess you have a certain confidence in yourself that other people might not have. What lies at the bottom of the sea and shakes? I don't know. A nervous wreck? <laughs> Um, I, I can't tell. Was that real or fake? No, no. That's, <laughs> you have to understand. Like, I, I'm, you're talking to a guy who, as a child, memorized entire, like, entire, um, like, entire Blanche Knotts truly tasteless joke books. I don't know if you remember those, but I was. I do. Yeah. I have, don't you feel so sad that we don't have those anymore? I mean, they they don't seem to make them anymore, do they? No. I mean, I used to get, I used to get them at Spencer's gift shops, and I had all of them, mm-hmm. and I would pour through them looking for material. And I think it was like this phase that I went through when I was uh, in junior high. We just moved, and I was uh, I was awkward. This was my big struggle. We moved uh, from Wisconsin to Indiana. It was traumatic. And, uh, <laughs> so I think I was I, I gravitated towards joke books and try, I was trying to find something to talk about. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I, I just I needed mm-hmm. material. So I used to memorize these jokes. So I have a, an an affection for uh, jokes. You know, especially. Oh, I, I you're you're married, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, my, my publicist is married too, so this it's okay to say this because it's okay when married people say this about each other, but um, my publicist thinks you're very handsome. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Well, who's your publicist? What's her name? Her name. <laughs> well, now I better not tell you because now I'm going to get everybody in trouble. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. I'll take it. Uh, okay. And let me uh, let me ask you about, uh, and this is going to sound, I, I fear sounding uh, sort of silly even in saying this, but I I mean, forgiveness, like, do you have, you know how oftentimes in like pop psychology or in the media, you'll hear people talking about traumas that they've lived through and abuse that they've suffered at the hands of uh, a family member or whoever it might be and how they ultimately have to forgive this person in order to transcend. Is that bullshit? Yeah, I, I, I hear that. I, I have no idea what they're talking about. I wish that I had killed my father when I had the chance because it would have saved so many other people, the last that I knew, he's still doing it. And um, he moved to, um, oh, what is that country where, where well, one of the countries where it's so prevalent for boys? Oh, like Cambodia or Thailand or it's a lot in Asia, it, right? Uh, yeah, one of those. I can't. Uh, I know what it is, but I forget. But that's what I heard last. So he's still um, alive. He's still yeah. alive and he's somewhere overseas. The last I heard, yeah, I actually went to the to the police a few years ago, a couple years ago, um, and tried to because it, I think one of the boys was killed, and so it's it's too late for any sort of um, the statute of limitations is up for any sort of 
rape, but um, for murder, there is no statute of limitations. And I tried to tried to solve the the cold case if there is one. I mean, this might be my mind. You know, I don't. My memories are so um, uh, messed with that it's hard to know. But anyway, so I, I did go to the police and to the um, FBI. I think it was they brought somebody in. I, I forget which branch. Um, and they, that's, that's when I found out that it seems like he's moved to that country. Ugh. So, well, and then what about, what about, uh, is it, for, and forgive but, yeah, no, I don't, I, there's no, what, what I forgive him for. Yeah, I don't know. You know? <laughs> I, I think that's really silly. But the, the thing that I have, um, that I do have is, um, I do have a, a, a gentleness towards, the dregs of mankind because I know that because of what I understood as the way that the world is growing up that way, I know I did terrible things. I, I know that I've, you know, beaten people up. I know I've been accused of rape and, um, that, you know, that they were right to accuse me of that. And I, I was going on what I thought was, how the world worked. And so I, it makes me have, um, have compassion for people who do crimes when they don't know any better because they're still like in that, you know, they're still in that, that mindset that you can actually think that you're doing somebody a favor because if you think that the world works that way, then you think that it's all like supply and demand. And if, and if you don't, give this, you know, you happen to have this talent that you can give the supply of torture or something. And if you don't, then the demand is just going to dry up and it's like a living death for people. That's like the way that your mind works. And so I, I understand, I feel, I feel for people who've been caught up in that, in that cycle and, you know, now they're in prison and I, I can, I can relate to murderers and, and, um, and torture people, torturers. I can't relate to pedophiles, though. It's like the one thing I can't. <laughs> I just wish they would all get sent to an island because it screws with you forever. And and it screws with an entire civilization. And it's so prevalent. Yeah. it's. And and it's so, I've had talks about this with my friend who's a psychi- uh, psychiatrist. And it's like, wh- why? You know, who are these people? What in the world is going on inside their minds? Like, how does this happen? Is it genetic? Is it behavioral? Is it environmental? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, do you have any insight into why these people exist? Or is it just like a, a cycle that repeats itself because it happened to them? Or or is it just pure evil? You know, like, what is it? From, from what I've seen, it's, um, it's people who enjoy control over other people and don't see uh, children as autonomous. And the the pedophiles who I've had the um, pleasure of knowing intimately, they didn't care that they were children. They cared that they were helpless. So it could be, you know, an elderly person. It could be a retarded person. Um, it could be somebody, you know, paralyzed. It, it's it's having somebody to use and confuse and take advantage of is satisfi- satisfying. That's what I've that's what I've seen. I, I don't 
feel that way. I never, I never have. When when I was, you know, doing bad things <laughs> to people, it was always to you know people my own age who were you know able to stand up. <laughs> right. And so, but you were like, and so you were involved in this. Like, your your father and then his friends or whatever were implicating you in this and forcing you to pr- sort of participate and collude or whatever. You know. I I don't have very specific memories of you know that's really um I, the the memories that I do have are hard enough that I you know sort of my brain has spared me I think anything that I took a more active role in if I ever did so right I don't I don't know yeah and well and then you know like you've written about as well like and forgive me if I'm misremembering the uh the name of it, but it's dissociative identity disorder. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So, so I mean, you, um, you have to, I mean, and it makes like perfect sense that when you're going through this kind of trauma as a child, like you have to distance yourself from it in order to cope. I mean, right. That, that was just a self-defense mechanism. I would, I would imagine. Um, it seems, uh, when they've looked into it, it seems like people who are intelligent and imaginative tend to tend to find their, good escape and organization in that in that method of splitting up your personality into compartments uh, yeah so it's just like natural that, that's what i did yeah, yeah like and, and 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 most of the people that i've been drawn to um you know are, are like that as well uh, you know you can recognize <laughs> we can recognize each other it's like uh it's, it's like we speak the same language and and um you know, if you're if you're an expatriate and you hear your language, your, your ears like really pick up, and you just immediately have a lot in common with this person, and you feel happy. <laughs> <laughs> it's like one of your, one of your tribe or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I, you know, I I don't know how I feel about the whole psychiatric. Um, I I don't know how I feel about people who don't have have this organization of their mind making judgments on whether that's a, a disorder or whether that's mentally ill or, um, you know, I don't know. I don't really, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not happy with psych- psychiatry right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it can, it can be, it's a, it can be sort of, uh, frustrating. Uh, I, you know, I, I have very minimal interaction with it. I went to, I've been to a therapist once in my life and I just found it really, I don't know. I found it very dis, just dissatisfying. And I think part of it was just that I didn't go to a good therapist. And then part of it was that I just, I don't know if I'm wired to do that or something, but, um, I think I get a lot of that from writing. You know what I'm saying? If I, if mm. I, if I have something to, to deal with, I'm, I'm imagining that it probably comes through in the art that I do. Or, you know, mm-hmm. are you that way? Uh, well, <laughs> you know I am. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. Anybody who's seen the show knows that I am. <laughs> you would almost have to be, though. Like, how else? I mean, because it's like, I, you know, with all of us, whatever pain or whatever difficulty or whatever stuff that we uh, experience in life, you know, uh, people who make art are tending to ventilate in their artwork somehow, even if it's not a direct assessment. You know, like somebody can be making a slapstick comedy about something that seems totally unrelated from, you know, X. And uh, yet it, that it's, that is actually, uh, in its own way, a direct addressing of it, you know? So, but you would, you would be 
interested in that of about um, about you know in reading or you know seeing something that somebody did about that because it's so extreme and you know about uh, you know I was a child prostitute and you want to hear the story but that's not that's not my life like I don't um, you know that's not what I'm interested in. Very often, I I like pop culture. I like uh, jokes. I like um, I like uh, you know evolution. <laughs> so uh, so I'm I'm not very interested in writing about that. It it does come out, but um, not happily. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and I don't know if you, you know. Like, ugh, it just seems like something that you would almost have to express in indirect ways. So, you know, like, what more can you say about it? Like, how can you, you know what I'm saying? I don't know. It makes sense to me that it would come out in these sort of indirect ways and would uh, find modes of expression that aren't literal, if that makes sense. Yeah, because you're looking at it as something like, oh, here's this bad thing that happened. But for me, it was it was my whole childhood. So it it's it's how I am. It's about my personality. So there was, like, glamour in it. There was relief. There was... Um, finding somebody to be kind to me and, and what that felt like after, you know, it, it was not, it was not like this series of, of torture. It was, it was my whole life, just like your life was your whole life. And, and, you know, things are, you know, a book that I, that I read at, at eight years old might've been a lot more important to me than things that were happening. I mean, was there a book when you were a child that you that you read that really like? Or are you just using that as like an example? Yeah, yeah. I mean, all of them. All yeah, of them, yeah. Uh, all uh, all songs on the radio. Yeah, that was my real life. And I think for a lot of people that that can be like that. You know, if they're lonely or live in Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> it's Sarah Palin just sitting up there with her radio, <laughs> listening to listening to country music. <laughs> That's nice. Yeah, waiting. We just got our sights on some moose. <laughs> um, our iPod. So let's in. let's talk about let's talk about your uh, artistic evolution and like uh, I guess like you know you get into adolescence. Like wh- when did you start to emerge into art in a more serious way? Like talk about that part of your life. Oh, I was always that way when I was. I learned to read and write, and I've never stopped. I was—I started writing books, very, very dramatic, theatrical plays, and uh, you know, after-school special type of type of books. Uh, just really, really over-the-top soap opera kind of things when I was in the single digits, and uh, then I—I I started publishing a fanzine called Dirt when I was 16, and that's when I started um, having people read what I did. And I, I, had also, I was also writing reviews of music or shows um, for any anyone who would take me. <laughs> so, and what kind of music were you drawn to? Is this like the punk scene that you were uh, attracted Yeah, anything to? underground. There was, you know, hardcore, goth, um, uh, Skinhead. I I didn't care. Uh, I liked performance art. I anything anything that was happening. And you were writing for. And you were sixteen, and you started your own zine. And then you were writing for whom? Like uh, elsewhere. Like who? Where did you start to publish outside of your own? Um, like Flipside, those kind of things. Okay. 
you know, other fanzines. Yeah. And where were you uh, living at the time? Um, when I was 16, yeah. I left I left home um, and I moved in with my best friend when I was 16. Um, and then when I was 17, I left out on my own and moved to California, to Hayward, City of Sin, and got really weird. <laughs> How so? <laughs> <laughs> um, because I was completely alone. I didn't know anyone there. And um, by, by the way, where is Hayward? Am I an idiot? I live in Los Angeles and I don't know. Am I an idiot? For it's, north. it's north of there. No, it, nobody should know it. All it is is used car lots and cemeteries and honey bear treat yogurt where I worked. <laughs> <laughs> so you moved to Hay- why, why, why there though why did you wind up there of all places I don't know I got I just wanted to get out and I got on a plane and I had the idea I had been working a lot and I had saved up money and I, um, I I had this idea that I was going to land in Los Angeles and I was going to be discovered and I was going to be a big star I felt really sure of it and nothing happened, so <laughs> <laughs> so I took a uh, I was I hitchhiked and then I landed in in Hayward, and so that's where I got I got a little growth tenement um, place, and uh, that, that made my weird little life there. And you started working at a yogurt shop. Yeah, and then I got fired because she caught me sneaking sneaking too many samples <laughs> for myself. <laughs> oh, please. How much, how much yogurt can one young girl eat? I mean, for God's sake, that stuff, that stuff costs nothing, right? You should be able to have all the yogurt you want. Uh, uh, but no. So what, uh, so what next? How long were you there for? Um, I don't know, six months maybe. And then I moved, I think, um, back to Dover, moved in with some, some um, heroin sellers, dealers, seemed like a good idea at the time. And <laughs> then I, <laughs> then I moved to Philadelphia with my best friend and a schizophrenic who later went on to stab a lady seventeen times, and that too seemed like a good idea at the time. He was my boyfriend, <laughs> and then um, <laughs> and he tried to uh, to rape me. And uh, I burned him. I was ironing clothes. And I burned his. He, he was had a naked chest and burned him with that iron. And then he didn't try anymore. And then I met uh, through the mail. My I met uh, Jean Louis Costas, and I, I I heard Happy Go Lucky Natives and that tape from Psychodrama. And I thought I want to marry this this French man, this old man with missing a tooth, <laughs> singing really thick, accented, crazy stuff. And then I did. He came to Philadelphia and we got married just right away. Like, like, just and, like right away you got married? Yeah. After it, it took two weeks. He was a little reluctant. <laughs> so you had to drag <laughs> him to the altar. Where did, where did you guys get married? Uh, we went to the, um, you know, the town hall, the city clerk, what is it called? Right. Justice of the Peace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I had my work apron on. <laughs> he had a brown. 
I don't even think he got a ring for himself. Such a beast. (laughs) And I already had a ring. I'd been wearing a wedding ring already to try to, I was a good looking gal and I was a barmaid and the, it was a college town and people were constantly grabbing my ass and stuff. And so I thought, Ooh, maybe if I have a wedding ring, they won't grab me so much, but no, they didn't mind. <laughs> See, and this is the thing about, I think back to when I was young, like I never grabbed any waitresses uh, or anything like that, but like I always, you know, because I was sort of shy and awkward with, uh, with women, I would always, mm-hmm. uh, I loved to go talk to bartenders and waitresses cause they were forced by occupation to actually have to talk to me. <laughs> And I'm, I'm, I was one of those idiots who like would think to himself, like, maybe I have a chance, but like, or maybe she really likes me, but really she just like wanted a tip. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. 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 Like, I, I, would, I would misread the kindness of a waitress and think that it was like an expression of interest when she was really just trying to get through her shift. If you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was very interested in you. She, she saw that 20% in your eyes. That's right. That's right. It was all a lie. And there I was <laughs> believing it was true. So, okay, so you're working as a waitress, you get married, you're in Philadelphia. So then we were we were touring, um, we went to New York City and did our show. We we did what we thought were operas, um, and Des- they describe, were really gross. Yeah, describe these shows. Describe what you would do on stage. Um, hold on a second. So, um, it would be... Um, well, I, I remember the first one was the murderer from Venus, and he was the murderer from Venus, and I was, uh, I think I was a goddess or something, and I only had on saran wrap and Christmas lights, and I was looking in a mirror, and he came out wearing, he had a, a broken umbrella for his outfit and nothing else. <laughs> wow. And, uh, and so he, I think he just like, beat and raped and dragged me around and said, I am the murderer from Venus. And then there was some love story. And uh, and then I came back. I think he killed me. And I came back as an avenging angel. And I enacted, you know, a really, really, really bad death on him. <laughs> and so when you... I think that's my memory of it. I mean, who knows what it was really like. But it, it was really... It had rhymes and stuff. And so it's like speaking and parts. It's singing... It's, no, all all singing. All singing. Well, well, yelling and, you know, right. I have a very bad voice, singing voice, but it sounds good to me. <laughs> it's all that matters. It's all that matters. <laughs> so when, In my head, it's beautiful. And where where were you performing these things? You were just like at underground clubs and small... That one was, a, I, I think our first show was at CBGB's, believe it or not. You know, the days were different then. It was really... Uh, you were, you could just say, Hey, I got this crazy thing and, and the, you know, greatest little club in Manhattan would say, Well, come on, come on. Come on do down. it. Yeah, right. Yeah. It you was... bring your Christmas lights, your saran wrap and your broken umbrella. <laughs> we're we're, re- we're ready for you. And your boom box with the backing tape. <laughs> right. Right. So was New York better back then? Was life better than, like, you know, because I always hear people romanticize, like, the early 80s in New York and the art scene in the late 70s, early 80s. Was it better back then? Well, this was the late 80s, and uh, I thought it was fantastic. I loved it so much, but I love it now. I, I just went, and I thought it was great. Um, not as great, because 
there's, you know, with the, I don't know what, what's happened. I think, I think with the internet, um, people already feel connected so they don't have to reach out and create their own weird little thing out of intense loneliness and alienation because you don't have time to feel that when you can look for something that you like and someone that you like and find them so easily. So I think that for those reasons, we were were so lost and lonely that there was such an active underground DIY scene um, where you could find these great, fantastic, bizarre, you know, really extreme shows anywhere. And, you know, in the living room in Kansas. <laughs> wow, but you know, that's, that's actually a really interesting point that in, in that nowadays people can have these kinds of collaborations or at least a super, on a superficial level uh, online. But back in the day, you know, you had to actually meet up and get into the same room in order to have Yes, that. and it, you couldn't do it at a young age because your parents wouldn't drive you, you know? So it was, you know, you got so lonely and so worked up and so bottled up if you had anything to express that by the time you finally created your show or your book or your, you know, your fanzine or your little movie, it was so freaky. <laughs> so, so you would get to see other people's crazy stuff that they had bottled up and, and it was prevalent and we were happy. And, you know, I think everybody sort of uh, acknowledged each other you know, we had a we had a common enemy. You know, the the normal people, <laughs> and and I don't think there are any normal people anymore. There's no there's no uh, there's a there's few. no enemy. There are there's there a are. few there's a but, few out there. But they have to be dominant in order to be, and and you know they have to be like the masses, and and that they're they're trying to bring you down, and they won't let you, you know, they won't let you be who you are. You know, I don't think we have that anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's well, I think what's weird, too, because I think sometimes, like, the uh, counterculture, you know, you, you know, is sort of innovating and doing all these different things and creating all of this uh, culture. And then I think a lot of the time what happens or what seems to happen is that it gets co-opted by uh, the powers that be and then, like, commodified in popular culture. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. I think if you think about like yeah. the '60s and you know, like all that stuff, just seems like, oh yeah, of course, it's just like part of the the fabric. But it's like a it's a facsimile of the real thing that that's kind of like mm-hmm. pack, packaged and sold. And so I think like when underground culture is successful and really kind of pervades, like that's oftentimes what happens. But you know, hopefully, there's still um, people existing at the periphery or people who are you know out there on the margins doing stuff that's weird and uh, experimenting because I think. Uh, I don't know. To me, it feels like part of a necessary. It feels like a necessary part of the cultural ecosystem or the human ecosystem. And if you don't have that, uh, it, there's a loss of vitality. Do you know what I'm saying? I don't know. I, I sort of like. I always sort of cheer for that sort of stuff. You know, I find myself. I don't know if like like by like by nature if I'm. I don't know. Like if you looked at me, if you saw me, like I always joke that like I'm the guy who should be a drug smuggler because I can get through customs. I look normal. Yeah. I don't dress, yeah. I don't dress weird. I don't know how to dress. I just look like a normal guy or whatever and um but yet I feel like I'm a lot weirder than I look. Um mm-hmm. and, and or at least I want to be or I have that sense and uh I, I like fe- that feeling. Yeah, yeah. I just feel I just feel like uh what am I trying to say? 
I feel like I've never a spy, been a super spy. <laughs> yeah. No, but I've never been in the midst of the, one of those kinds of movements. Uh, I never found myself in the middle of the punk scene in the early eighties or whatever, the new wave or, you know what I'm saying? Like I just, I've always sort of, you know, I was, how old are you? I'm 36, 37. Yeah, you might be a little too young. You yeah. might have dismissed it. Yeah, yeah, but I, you know, and just Poor like, guy. I, I was just from India. Oh, you could see it. It was just out of touch. It always felt like that. <laughs> it always felt like that to me. Like all these things were happening and I was just trying to sort of, and it still feels like that to me today. And, but what happens is that I view it all through the prism of the internet and I find myself watching these things and they might not even be real. I think some of the times they are and some of the times they aren't, but it can be easy to imagine that there's all this stuff happening. Um, that you get some sort of, you know, window into via your Facebook wall or whatever. And then you start to think like, oh my God, you know, like this stuff is unfolding. And sometimes it really is. And sometimes the culture only exists online, which is super crazy, you know, but I don't know. When I just did that, that little tour that I did for the Yoko book, um, I did it on purpose, not in any bookstores or, or clubs. It was all in people's living rooms. Because I wanted, I wanted to to have that that weird feeling like, is this a show? What's happening? You know, this is this is so weird. This is a living room. You know that you know that feeling like like this isn't right. Right. And I, I think when you're in a club, you whatever happens, that's the show. This is a club. This is people are coming out for a show. So whatever is happening, this is the way it, that it should be. So there's a, that acceptance, and there's no. There's no danger. There's no uh, chaos because it's all it's all acceptable. So, um, so that's why I, I did like really small living room things that felt really weird because I made people get naked and stuff, and um, and we were we were reenacting different Yoko. Um, wait, 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 wait! Uh, and people would get naked, like they were willingly just stripped down in front of other people. I told you I have skills. Say, <laughs> this sounds like horrifying to me. I have fear of public nudity. I, I, I think that it would... was horrifying to them too until they did it, and then it was glorious. I think. I don't know. Maybe it, maybe it traumatized the whole new <laughs> herd. <laughs> so you're stripping people down naked in their living rooms or in somebody's living room, and you're you're reenacting, yeah. you're reenacting Yoko Ono performance art pieces. Yes, and films, and then we we were bashing our heads against the wall, um, and uh, that feels really good. Have you ever done that? Uh, metaphorically speaking, yeah, it's like my day. It's like my day job. <laughs> no, not that. It's not boring. It feels really good. Like try it as soon as you get off the phone. Bash your head against the the wall, or you could do it right now. And it's uh. Hang on, I'll try. I'll try on my a, desk. Can I do okay, my desk? Okay. okay. Let me move the mic. Gotta do it hard. All right. I'm, do it a few a, times. Hang on a second. Ow. <laughs> that actually, Is that good? Uh, Is that a rush? Yeah, it was good. I like it. I'm feeling a little. It's a little sore, but yeah, I I actually really it's did it. It's sore, but it's good sore. Yeah. 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 So we did that, and we did. Um, thank you. Uh, of course. And we did um, dancing. Uh, with she Yoko created this intricate choreographed dance. I mean, she was classically trained and she knew what she was doing. She had a background in, in classic music on opera and everything. And, and she, um, she had 
she she composed this dance, but then she turned all the lights out so nobody could see it. Nobody in the audience could see all the hard work that these you know ballerinas were doing, and so uh, that I think that's supposed to you know disorient you, and then maybe you can feel the dance or something, or maybe you can see it like in your mind in a way that you don't. Like if you go to the ballet and you see them doing it, it's great, it's beautiful, they're really good, but you know that you're at the ballet watching a ballet, so it can't be this really transcendent experience because it's encapsulated in being what it's supposed to be, where it's supposed to be, how long it's supposed to be and following all the rules of, of what it is. So, um, I think it was, it was boring for some people, but probably life changing for others. So I tried to recreate that by, um, doing some (laughs) ballroom dancing in the, in the dark, uh, and I I think it was beautiful, I, but I think everything I do is beautiful. So. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it was probably a pretty strange evening. You know, if you're going to go to your friend's house and then you end up taking your clothes off and riding a, a um, an exercise bike, and <laughs> then <laughs> oh god, it's, it's horrifying. Now wait. Are you... Are you uh, are you are you stripping down at these events? Are you getting naked at your? Events? I did not because I took I took Yoko's role and she kept her clothes on. She was the producer. Oh, this see. is up your legs forever. Up your legs forever is a, is a you can go watch it on YouTube, um, and and it actually makes it really boring. It makes the body really boring. So yeah, which um, people which is probably so, good for people. Like that's the thing. Like it can be easy to like. Uh, get melodramatic about it and it's just a body you know who cares right mm-hmm. yeah yeah and and then uh so i i think we experienced that and i had a really old friend of mine um was there and he just ripped them off and then i i you know and i was kind of like not looking you know you don't really want to look and then all of a sudden I, see i do though. i always I'm... look i always look that's my problem <laughs> Well, I've known him for 15 years, you know, and so I didn't, you know, I didn't want to never be able to unsee what I saw. So <laughs> I was trying to, you know, and anyway, then he was, I was sitting on the couch and he was standing behind me and I turned around. I didn't know he was there and I leveled. There it was. I'll never be able to, to, um, not know what I now know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is, but this is making this is making the average book tour seem uh, completely pedestrian by comparison. And it was so exclusive. Oh my God! How she she that there were only like nine people sometimes. I don't think there were more than nine. I, I always exaggerate, but now I'm exaggerating the other way. So <laughs> I don't know. Maybe like twenty five, thirty people. But I think that's so much better than three hundred people. It's so uh, you feel so special. Yeah, well, yeah, and then there's that intimacy, and then plus, like, there could be something sort of antiseptic about bookstore readings and uh, something sort of rote about it, you know, and this allows for spontaneity, and it makes people, I just think, like you say earlier, like you were mentioning earlier, like, the, the, the context matters, the location matters, the, you know, where, where you set these things has an impact on how they're experienced, and I think when people are sitting on folding chairs in a bookstore, uh, like a fluorescently lit bookstore, that's one experience, but when people are in a living room and somebody gets naked and starts riding an exercise bike, like all of a sudden you've got yourself an experience. And, um, I think there's something to be said for that. (laughs) 
yeah, I mean, that's, that's life. I don't understand why, I don't understand uh, book readings. I've, I've never done it because it would bore and embarrass me. I'm sorry. I know I'm speaking to somebody who like, this is you, this is your, um, you know, like you have all these books and you, and you love them so much. And I, I love them so much too. Like I read your, your site and it's, I, I like that format, but to read out loud and not create something new when, when you're having, when you get to meet these people, it's like, it's exciting to get to meet people, to, to get to meet people who have read you and you get to meet people who you've read and you, it's, you know, it, it seems like there should be more than hearing the book read. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. I it's, have like such conflicted feelings about live readings and I'm always involved in them. Like uh, I put them on, I do, you know, I participate in them sometimes and uh, they always go fine. You know, like I, I can sit here and bitch about it and I do sometimes and uh, that's a little melodramatic. Like they go fine and people have a, people can have a good time, but I get it too when people say uh, this feels strange and masturbatory and kind of boring even and why are we doing this? And like, shouldn't we be doing something better? And then I think I particularly feel that way in the context of Los Angeles, where I think the people who come out to see a reading, maybe more so here than in other towns, are expecting a show. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, mm -hmm. So Los, yeah. Los Angeles is actually a great town for you in terms of doing events, because I think people uh, are sort of wired for a show, as opposed to maybe like Portland or Seattle, where you have a more traditionally literary culture or something where they're, or people are, are, you know, not as distracted or have the patience to sit there and listen. But in Los Angeles, I feel like if there's not like music and something happening and you're not pacing it properly, people just yawn and like leave. You know, <laughs> yeah, if you ever get bored, you can just like throw a little firecracker at the reader yeah. and then, <laughs> and then just see what happens. That's my favorite thing to do is to do something and then see what happens. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I'm going to get you in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> well, but let, let me ask you, uh, let me ask you about Yoko. Okay. Like how did, like for, you know, okay. we, we talked about her, but like, how did you arrive at uh, her and her work and wanting to write about it? I, I was just given that book. Um, my editor, Mike Edison proposed it to me. He said, Hey, nobody's really done a good look at Yoko Ono, they're just concentrating on, you know, John and Yoko. And uh, what do you think about her? Just her, like not, not um, connected to, to one artist. And I had always been interested in her and admired and disliked her at the same time, because there's something really inviting and something really cold about her at the same time. So I, I find that really interesting. And she never gossips. She's not like other people. So you never feel like you know her. And it's kind of unbelievable how she's always talking about peace and, you know, spreading love. I kind of can't believe her, yet she's she sticks to it. And, and uh, I think she was so lonely growing up so um, ostracized and, and unloved. And I, I think, I think it's genuine, but it's just sort of so alien. 
I don't know. I was always interested in her and felt conflicted about her. And if you're going to spend a year researching and saying what you think about somebody, it might as well be somebody that you, you know, you feel conflict about because otherwise you're just going to be agreeing with yourself for a whole year. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds miserable. <laughs> But no, but and do you feel, did you feel a certain in addition to feeling conflicted about your perceptions of her? Did you feel a kinship, like from a performance art standpoint or from an artistic standpoint, broadly? No, kinship would be too warm a word. She's prickly. Um, there's something about her that's untouchable. But I do, um, I do appreciate her. Um, I I do feel the same about constantly trying to express freedom and for people to stop uh, stop not seeing stop not living you, you don't have to just you don't have to just do what you don't want to do all the time and 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 think ugly thoughts it's just not necessary and she actually provided um, a, a, a way out constantly over and over she recreated a way out of your mind being stiff all of her career she's 80 80 years old now she's still doing it God. you know just like cutting out a hole in a painting and then and, and then saying this is my painting go take it outside and look through the hole at the sky and when you know somebody might not have looked at the sky since they were a kid like really looked at the sky and now now somebody's telling them she's like a, a Buddhist Zen master. Yeah, yeah. No, I see. I kind of like her. I follow her on Twitter, and like people make fun of her tweets, and uh, <laughs> I think she's great. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I'm all for somebody doing that, like just trying to kind of like take you out of your comfort zone, or you know, just sort of mm-hmm. like gently like smack you in the middle of the forehead, you know, sort of like pounding your head against the wall, like we were talking about earlier, you know. Yeah, uh, so, yeah. She she gives instructions, and we sorely need them. <laughs> yeah. So okay. So what did your research? What did your research process involve? Were you just reading? Did you ever meet her? You didn't get to interview her or anything. No, I didn't. I, I actually didn't want to, um, and I, which is lucky because, as far as I know, she didn't want to meet me either. <laughs> um, I read about her. I watched her on YouTube, and I, I, I was in a bad situation. I was in a house with um, somebody who was on the bad side of of a alcoholic downturn, so um, it was like being in The Shining, and so yeah, yeah. So it was really my day to day life. Uh, I don't know if you've ever dealt with an alcoholic who doesn't realize they're an alcoholic yet, um, who you love dearly. And they love you, and they're a really good person, and they're really fucking insane. Um, have you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, I've known people who've been struggling with addiction for sure. Yeah, well, imagine being locked in the house out in the country with somebody like that, and you believe them because you love them. So, like, when they say crazy things or, you know, explain their crazy actions with this crazy explanation, you... you um. You think, is that true? Or am I crazy for questioning? You know, and it's really a, it's really a strange way to live. It's kind of satisfying a little bit because it, it always keeps you interested and because you, you're always wondering what's real. That, for me, that's interesting. 
But anyway, it's also a great suffering. It's a terrible suffering to wonder what's real. So uh, Yoko was what I was working on at the time, and she was, like, so sane to me. <laughs> Everything that she said was she wanted people to, to love each other and to understand uh, understand that life is good. And that was so the opposite of of uh of where I was where my reality was that it was it was like she was my best friend in the world, like my best imaginary friend, so I was really happy working on the book yeah. <laughs> also i also it was a very lonely situation, and she's a very lonely person in the world, so I felt like my best imaginary friend really understood me. <laughs> is she though? Is she I mean because like uh, like this is sort of a random uh, Yoko sighting. I actually saw her once, not even that long ago. Um, and so when you said she's eighty, that sort of blows my mind because she doesn't. She didn't look eighty to me. She looked younger. I know she looks good. Yeah, but anyway, I saw her. Uh, you know, it was like Mother's Day or something, and I took my my. You know, we had took my mom out to brunch and. We were at this hotel in Los Angeles, and uh, Yoko was sitting out there, and she had this big hat on, and I was thrilled. I was, I was truly thrilled to see you. You know, like I don't get starstruck that often, but I was genuinely thrilled to see her. Um, uh-huh. And then I don't even know where I'm going with that. I saw her, and then... But how did that make her not lonely? Oh, okay, yeah, no. And she was with somebody, and then I'm wondering to myself, does she have an active social life? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, does she... Because this is the thing, like you, in my like mind's eye, you either see her up there like lighting a candle in the window at their apartment at the Dakota, and I feel so bad, you know, like this poor woman <laughs> lost her husband at such a young age in such a tragic way and had to raise this child on her own. And, you know, it's easy to kind of imagine her in that solitary way, but she must have friends, right? I mean, or do, does she? Well, apparently, right, after like five months later, it, the gossip goes, she moved Sam, the boyfriend, in five months later, and they were together for 20 years. And th- But then also people say that he was gay, but I don't know about that. I mean, that would be really strange. Why would you be with somebody for 20 years if you, you know, if he can't have lovers and she can't have lovers? I don't know. Then again, I heard she had lady lovers so would, who knows who knows yeah he won't tell and and he seems to be very powerful about keeping other people from from talking so i only speculate yeah. and i do it all the time have you ever, have you ever <laughs> seen her have you ever seen her in new york or anywhere like did you ever cross nope. paths with her never no has she read your book i don't know if you, oh, no. if she's listening to this right now, <laughs> what would you like to tell Yoko Ono? Oh, I think she has everything she needs. I don't think she needs anything from me. I think I needed something from her, and I, I definitely got it. So thank you, Yoko. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and like when you say you got what you needed, like it was basically what you were talking about earlier, like the circumstances of your life during the writing of the book, kind of conspired. It's like she gave me, she gave me painting with a hole cut out of it to look out of my life, out of this this house out in the country where I was with a raving moon, and I was able to look out of that hole and see, like, this is just this is just what's right in front of me, but look at, there's that whole world out there, 
and and then you're like, well, why don't I just step into it? And then I did. That's really a lovely way of putting it. Uh, do you, I mean, you. I'm, compl- yeah, I'm complimenting you. <laughs> that, actually, that actually is though. That's a really lovely way of putting it. And so, um, what is, uh, like, what, what are you doing next? Like, what are you doing now? And then do you have plans for like another project or what's going on in your life these days? Yeah. What I'm doing now is, uh, you know, I made, I did the hundred paintings in a hundred days when I had never painted before. And that's what became the book with no name. Well, now I'm doing, well, I haven't started yet, but I bought the clay. I'm doing a hundred sculptures in a hundred days. And this time, instead of traumatic, buried memories of abuse, it's going to be, uh, <laughs> and I can't believe, you know, those paintings, they sold like that. Like they sold these horrible paintings of, you know, just like torture and murder and, and decapitation and, and terribleness people loved them they would go up on ebay and then the, the next day they'd be sold <laughs> how, how much did you mind um, me asking were you selling them for a lot of money or is it just i mean decent money like what was happening you just i would put them i put them up for 99 cents and then i said let the free market let the free market go so some of them would get up to 100 150 dollars and some of them only would go up to like really really ugly little ones would only get like five dollars right yeah. Well, still though, you're poor selling, little. You're selling artwork. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I think it got a lot of art into people's lives, and and also because I can't paint or I couldn't paint, I can paint now. After a hundred days of doing that, you can do anything. Uh, then it, I think it got other people into it, and then I went and I did a little tour, and I brought a bunch of paints and and canvases, and I had everybody paint each other's souls, <laughs> and um. And everybody did really beautiful ones. It's people are really talented, and they don't know it. Most of the people had never painted, or you know, hadn't painted since they were kids, and and they did these really, really incredible expressionistic, uh, colorful paintings. Very nice. So now I'm doing the sculptures, but I'm doing them instead of horribleness. I'm going to do all stuff that I like and, and makes me happy, like chunky burrs and, um, like what, you know, what was the first thing? Chunky burrs. I love chunky burrs. And, what are uh, chunky bars? Well, they're this kind of rare candy. They're, they're trapezoidal shaped <laughs> and it comes in, it's chocolate with, with raisins and peanuts oh, in it. Yeah. But I, I, I like the shape and I like the I like the elusive quality of it. Most, Stories don't carry them, so when I do find them, I'm I'm gleeful. Everybody um, and a trapezoidal chocolate treat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I, I like uh, you know, I like I like naked people. I like the beach. I like um, I I don't know. I like boats. Probably do some boats. Yeah. Do all kinds of boats. And you like have, tugboats, do, you have the, do you have the materials? Like are you going out and like buying materials, or is it just like found objects, or like what are you doing to? Create no, this? I bought I bought clay and uh, all these different colored clay, and you just make it, and then you I guess you roll it out, and, and then you just squish it together, and maybe cut some parts off, and then stick it in the oven. So that's what I'm going to do. They're all different colored 
clay, so I guess you don't paint them. I don't know. I'm going to find out how to do it after I've done it. <laughs> right. Just dive in. Immerse yourself. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wish you the best of luck uh, on it. I've had uh, such a great time talking with you. I appreciate you taking the time. Oh, oh, wait. I have one more for you. What did the executioner do with his pen and paper? I don't know. What did he do? Wrote his chopping list. Uh, on that note Lisa uh, thank you and good luck with everything thank you Brad good night alright you guys there you go that is Lisa Carver her new book is called Reaching Out with No Hands Reconsidering Yoko Ono it is available now from Backbeat Books you can find Lisa online at suckdog.net she's also on the Facebook. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed at otherpeoplepod. So go ahead and follow that. I have a Twitter feed at Brad Listy if you would like to read my shockingly confessional tweets. The show has a Facebook presence. And if you would like to email me and tell me your whereabouts, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. And hey, uh, please don't forget to go get the app, the free official Other People app available for your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod Touch, or your Android device. It's free. Did I mention that? And it is, I think, the best way to listen to this show. Uh, thanks, as always, to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And, hey, uh, I think that's it. Uh, I'm dealing with a little bit of insomnia. Uh, can you hear it in my voice? Can you hear it there? Can you hear it resonating? It continues, but I'm still fighting. I'm still functioning. I'm still upright. Uh, I am thinking about sleep tonight. I am wondering if it's going to happen. I'm anticipating. And I know that I shouldn't anticipate. I know that anticipation is part of the problem. I know that it is part of the insomnia equation. And I know that I should just focus on the moment. I should remain locked in the here and now. I should enjoy the strange effects of life without proper sleep. I should do that. I should do that. Please remember that Joseph Conrad died of a heart seizure, a heart seizure, and that Aristotle, when asked... What grows old most quickly said, quote, gratitude, end quote. And uh, that's it for now, guys. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Please go get a copy of Board if you have a chance. It's available wherever books are sold online. Get yourself a copy. Lift me out of writerly poverty. Wouldn't that be fun? Honestly, it'll nourish you. It will stimulate you. Uh, it will invade your soul. <laughs> <laughs> 